G'day, it is The Coach, and we are talking about all things tournament and event organizing. I am excited to introduce my guest. It is the tournament organizer extraordinaire, a man who is the event organizer for the Las Vegas Open for Age of Sigma. Doesn't run the whole convention, I don't imagine, Scott. You're not no. you're not running Vegas and the casinos and no, the tables no. and the tournament. Uh, you also do SoCal. I know you've done a heap of tournaments, heaps of like, I'll look at tournament packs in America just to see kind of what's going on and your name pops up all the time. Uh, but it is Scott Reed, and, and I want to unpack and understand tournament organizing from his perspective and maybe get some hints and tips for third edition. But before we get into that, hello, welcome. Do you want to introduce yourself to the, this is your debut. This is the first time you've been here. Let the people know who you are. Yeah. Uh, well, Scott Reed, I uh, organized the LVO. I kind of got into tournament organizing as soon as AOS came in. And I know we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through the, the course. Um, love the game. Enjoy the community. Looking forward to us all being able to play again and visit. I know I wanted to make it to other countries to play. And before we were on lockdown, I was going to go to England to go to South Coast. And me and wife were talking about trying to get back over to other places we visited, like Australia. And, you know, just use it as an excuse to, honey, we can go to Australia. And there happens to be dot, 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 you know. Very, very good timing. Well, look, how about, how about you take a couple of days off and go do your own thing. And then I'll, you know, I'll just, I'll hang out at, at a hotel. Like, nothing fancy. Yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, she's look, really good I, about look, it. Yeah, so is my my wife's really awesome, and um, you know, as long as you as long as you play it well. But I've you know had the luxury of going over to England to play in uh, Blood and Glory. I've gone to Adepticon. Was meant to go to Midwest Meltdown last year. Um, there's a lot of events that you know from an international perspective. But I know, I know for me and for people who watch the channel regularly, um, I've been in lockdown, and as of tomorrow, literally like twelve hours, eleven hours from now. I am allowed out of my jail. I can go drink something that's not prison wine. I can play Age of Sigma in real life. And I and I had this idea, and kind of what led me to, to reach out to Scott was what's changed in third edition when I run my event, because my community hasn't had real life Sigma for, for 14, 16 weeks, we since June. And as I make the jump from second to third in real life, has a lot changed. You know, how do I introduce people into a community? Uh, how do I get people who are maybe new to the hobby? I know a lot of new players have gotten into Age of Sigma over third. How do I introduce them and get them into the game, but also still create a, a really good space for those experienced players? So for me, this is kind of what I want to unpack out of this particular show is, is what have you learned, Scott, along the way? Uh, what have you learned from second edition? What have you learned from third edition? Um, what are those hints? And, and we'll kind of unpack a lot of questions. And already the chat is saying that you are the best TO in the world. So looks like I've nailed it. <laughs> well, I'm happy that I was at least your fifth or sixth choice for this. I, I know you had to go through something. Um, my first. You were my first. But Yeah, third edition and it's uh, extended... Uh, Changes, I mean, for the basics, the mechanics of running an event, as you've run plenty of them, in same size I have, it's going to be mostly the same. I mean, we both know that. Um, it's kind of the nitty-gritty little rules bits. We need to figure out what we're going to do with the new missions, the new scoring. Um, 
and you mentioned bringing people into the game. That's kind of, it's just about as easy as it always was. You just, in that first couple of games, you skip tactics. You just go over, here's the, here's the objectives, here's the control. And then like the next game you go, Hey, let's add. And you throw in maybe the battle tactics or a grand strategy for the whole game. Think about trying to keep that unit alive. You need at least one of these to, to score your, you know, hold the line. And eventually a couple of games in, then you kind of bring another thing and another thing. The same as always been. You always kind of Yeah. I know I, I know way. for me, I know for me, um, so lockdown literally ends in I think it's eleven hours from now. And I've already reached out to one of my venues and I've said, Hey, I want to run a one dayer and I'm going to run a normally I would try to get three games in um over a one day period. But I've just said to them, look, I just want, I'm going to run a two, a two game event because I want to create the, you know, like three hour block, three hour block and a good lunch because it's been such a long time since people have actually rolled dice in real life. They probably haven't played a lot of third edition. So battle tactics are going to change, but I'm, you know, kind of growing them into that GT mindset and getting them prepared for the match play rule, you know, five games over a week yeah. or whatever it might be. But Let's bring it back. What got you into tournament organizers? Because I imagine there'd be a few people watching this show thinking, you know, I would love to be an event organizer or I'm always playing and I want to run something in my community, whether it's something small, whether I actually, you know, use a launch pad. I know like the Texas folk are putting on lots of events. You know, oh, what yeah, got that's you into event or, you know, but it's made a real launch pad, right? Like people are now kind of got their eyes on the Texas scene. But what got you as an event organizer? Like what actually got you from player to actually hosting? I think probably the same way several of us did when AOS dropped. The old community at large, the old guard, most of them quit. And we were sitting around the game store constantly saying, somebody should run something. And if you say it enough times, eventually you become the guy running something. That's kind of where it started. And you, we ran a couple events when there were no points. Then when the General's Handbook came out, we ran some things. And like six months into the General's Handbook, I ran an event and tons of people came. It was a one dayer at almost 40 people. It just, you know, there's just this build in the community in that first edition when they finally got points and you had some 40 K players who the rules at that time were not so great. They hadn't dropped eight yet. So a lot of them were like looking for that same game experience, but a little more quality than seventh was giving them. So I was just had these ballooning events for a while and that got me recognized uh, the guys who run uh, what was the broadside bash in town here at a big game convention. They ran a giant event. So they, they asked me to help them with that because they, they didn't know anything about AOS. And that just kind of snowballed into getting to do SoCal and the Las Vegas open and just on and on and on. So I, I've, I've done a number of events where people just needed somebody and they come ask me. Now there are other people filling those roles. So that's that's kind of how I get started in this. I'm sure that's not different than a lot of other people who had the same experience. You know, I love to play, but there's nobody running. So somebody had to. I think when I think about my tournament organizer, so my, my experience, folks, is I run um, a, an annual 100-player event, and I run a lot of small events, you know, 30, 50-player events, you know, one-dayers and things like that. But, you know, my Sydney GT, which is 100 players approximately, um, I, I, I try to always go for, um, for luxury as opposed to um, cramming as many bums in a venue because I could certainly go more than 100 
But I think my tournament organizer journey started as a player, funnily enough, when I used to have um, a local game store would run a monthly Age of Sigmar event. And, and maybe some players uh, who are listening to this might have a similar journey where I love FLGSs. I love those game stores, but often they're not an Age of Sigmar store. You know, they're doing magic, they're doing 40K and bolt action and all of the games, right? And I found myself kind of helping the store owner and just going, look, pick these missions, you know, schedule these times, providing feedback to kind of encourage them. And, and at one point, our little store had, I don't know, 40, 40 maybe players a month coming in, and which is massive, right? It's massive for a one-day, once-a-week, once-a-month kind of thing. And then yeah. that was kind of my launch pad, you know, and I was able to use the local game store because they had the tables. They had the terrain. They did everything, and it didn't mean that me as an organizer had to go out and buy all this stuff. Um, I could work with them, build a scene, and then I, I had experience and reputation I can tap into when I launched my first event, my own event. Yeah, I haven't actually had the experience of directly running an event from the top down, the money, the places. I run them at friendly local game stores. Most of them here, they need somebody to run it. They have no idea what to do or they want to. And when they hear you ran a successful one here, I've gotten calls from places, you know, an hour and a half or more away going, hey, we'd love to do that here. And a lot of them, I'll run it once, then somebody or twice, and somebody there takes over. And that's happened at a couple of game stores. Um, but the whole top-down organizing it dollars and cents wise, I've been more of a helper in that scenario rather than the sole proprietor of it, which sounds like you've done, which sounds terrifying. I do. Well, you know, like right over here, I've got 55 battle mats. I have a garage full of terrain um, yep. because you know, I, I'm someone who likes to be in control. But that, I guess that's probably one of the most daunting things that I think TOs think about. It's like, right, well, if I'm a TO, I need to go out and buy this stuff. That's all my hobby money gone in mats and tables, and you don't have to start there. So, and we're kind of like, like that's kind of you know one of the things that I'd want to say is, is you know you can partner with your FLGS, you can get people to bring in terrain and you know tap into clubs and only grow. And sometimes I've told people, no, I'm not going to put any more uh, players at this event because I don't have enough terrain. And I don't want to compromise the event. I don't want to have shit terrain or have right. like three pieces because they're spread out across more tables. Yeah, you want people to come in and love it, share it, and it draws in more people, but you don't want to get bigger than you can handle on the space and the tables and the manpower you have. You want to try and keep everything to a level you can control. But yeah, a lot of friendly local game stores, um, like te the Texas scene, I visited there before COVID in the summer and I was back out to run uh, the Lone Star Open that the Frontline guys put on. And that community, they have their own terrain. They have clubs, they've built it all. And when they do a big event, they all bring it, they all share. Yeah. And that's it's amazing that they that's something they do there. I know a few other communities work similarly. In Southern California, it's almost always been clubs that do it and they have their own stuff and they don't usually lean on each other. Um, yeah, because I'm in a similar circumstance. I have, uh, we're going to do SoCal Open, uh, and that's another frontline event. And they have tables I help them build, but they probably don't need any because we're going to have maybe 50-ish players, and I've got more than enough terrain for 25 tables because you just, eventually, that's just what you do. You acquire more and more and more. 
Yeah, I think, you know, when I think about, I know we're kind of getting to logistics, which is really good. And because to me, I think, I think the tournament organizer part is not necessarily the start right at the end, which is actually in the the event. My belief is as a tournament organizer, everything you do leading up to the event will set you up for success, whether it's the players pack, whether it's the venue, whether it's um, thinking about the battle tactics and the missions and thinking about um, literally everything that goes with it. I, I, I'm really micro with my stuff. Like I will often build in lunches and, you know, my players will pay me for their lunch and I will get that delivered. So that's one less thing they have to worry about on the day. You yep. know, I'll go into that level of detail because then when it gets to the actual day of the event, it's smooth. I've got literally everything under control. Um, so that's how I kind of see tournament organizing. I don't know how you you look at it. Yeah, well, much the same. Anytime you run an event, there's always a checklist of things you want to try next time. And the next and the next. And lunch is great if you can get it provided, if you can figure out a way to get it there. And players are willing to pay for that. I remember the first time I tried that, there was a license cost me $5 more. It's like, well, we're, we're having chicken, tortillas, water, all provided. It's going to cost you five bucks. Oh, well, <laughs> here you go. You know, because once they know they're getting fed for that five bucks, that's that's a deal, you know, really. They're there for the day. They can hang out and talk to everybody. They don't have to think about it. It builds, builds a little more community because they don't all leave in their own directions. Um, your pack, going back to other things you mentioned, you want to know what what is it is that is your goal? What are you doing here? Is it to grow a community? Is it to whittle down uh, players to a certain style of player, or a certain group? And that sounds bad, and I'm not one of those guys. I want an open event or as many people coming. But you read some packs, and it's like the paint has to be at this level, at this level. This is what you're expecting to see, and you're, you're going to turn away a certain group of people. That's where if you say, look, uh, GW basic, three colors, put a wash on it, you're good. Um, make sure your basing's done. You have to have some competency of the rules. Other than that, come and have fun. And a lot of the time I find most of the people who come have a great time, no matter what their level of experience, especially in a five-round tournament, because by the time you get to that third round, you're playing people who have the same scores as you, the same general level as you, and they take the game as seriously as you do. Whether that whether you're, you know, two and zero at that point or zero and two, you're running into people who generally play the game like you do. So those last three rounds are always amazing for everybody, and they, you know, always say so. There's just this constant feedback of how great it is. The longer a tournament generally gets to be. Yeah, it's interesting because you're. I I agree with you that the players pack is probably the way that you, as an event organizer, brings your event to life. Um, it is, you know, how strict you want to be on painting. I run, I run a plenty of events where I have no painting requirements, and usually they are the one day events. My 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 two day events, I don't have that painting requirement. So, sorry, my two day events, I have painting requirements. But if I'm just trying to get people to come and play at my play 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 some games on a monthly basis to hang out and roll dice, doesn't matter. Like bring bring your yeah. plastic models that aren't painted. Have a practice with it. Because that's the tone I'm trying to set. I'm trying to set a casual, let's hang out tone. But then when it comes to my GT, I'm like, look, you know, I'm serious. People who are traveling, I don't want people to travel internationally or domestically 
to come up with someone who hasn't quite put the effort into their army and they're running, you know, gray plastic. It's not the, the, the best experience. Yeah. And I, I made that mistake at LSO it, there, there's a secret. Um, the guy who ran Adepticon for years, uh, he was in the show where they asked him about running events. He, his right at the top, uh, Alex said, look, you're going to make a mistake, embrace them. Don't do them again and move on, but there's always going to be something. And we're just out of COVID. It's a big event in Texas. I'm, you know, kind of able to travel and do things. And the guy helping me kind of asked, you know, there's, there's a partially painted set over there. Should we do something about it? I'm like, eh, they're just coming out. Maybe I'll be lenient. But I had comments from players who came because my pack said three colors, wash, you know, certain standard. And when I got feedback from the event, from the survey, I got a lot of people who pointed out, look, you know, these things weren't pulled from the table. These things were wrong. And there was only, I think there's only two things in all the tables that actually had that out of the 40 some people who are playing. So mm. stick to what you say you're going to do, even if you want to be lenient. Um, Cause that, that, that's, as you were saying, which uh, a two day event, I mean, usually the same, I let myself get lax at one event and it, it, gave me feedback that like, look, we don't want that. We paid to come here. We traveled all the way from X, you know, I want to see good tables and good people. The tables are great, but there was, you know, that was unpainted and those models weren't done. And you can't, you can't, unfortunately you can't let it slide at a big event like that. Cause there's enough people who read it, take it seriously. And you're turning away the more for the privilege of the few. Yeah. And, and, you know, like for anyone who's listening to this thinking we sound like elitists, you know, I, I don't want you to take away the fact that, you know, we are Warhammer elitists and everyone must have a, you know, really great battle re battle ready plus type army. And, you know, they, like we're, we're not setting the standard for Golden Demon, but I think about I think about my audience and I think about who's attending and people are investing. You know, there's one thing in life you're never going to get back and that's time. And if somebody's going to spend one or two days for outside of their their family and their gym and their sports and their kids and their dogs and their other hobbies and spend it with me uh, playing Warhammer and they travel, whether it's one hour, six hours, I get people coming internationally to come to my events. Um, right. I, I don't want them to travel and to come to something as just gray plastic. That's not the best experience. And that's yeah. why we set the tone not to be a jerk. But to create a good experience, and to, and Scott, you said it, pull models if you're being consistent. I think that's key, right? If you say you're going to do X, um, you've, you've got to follow through. Yeah. And like I said, it, it was very few, but that's probably what I read the most comments about. That wasn't something to deal with third edition and just dealing with the new game rules and timings and stuff. That, that jumped out as like, yeah, I knew better and I shouldn't have done it. But we're all out of lockup. I was excited. <laughs> what else do you include in your players pack? Because the players pack to me is where I spend a lot of time. I really craft that players pack to be as detailed and as clear as possible to what I, as the tournament organizer, expect. What do you do with your players packs? So I have the the detail, the materials, things. I, I adjust from one to the next. Um, because I run a lot of out here, um, I know 40K ITC scored pretty much worldwide. Their events constantly. AOS is mostly in the United States, I figure, in certain pockets. Um, yeah. 
So I purposely adjusted my pack, which took a lot of time because I didn't want anybody pointing to, well, that's the way they're supposed to do it for um, ITC. Uh, for any of it's the uh, independent tournament scene. I, I always call it ATC. I don't. That's right. I would have never known what the acronym was, actually. I only know it as ITC. Yeah. So I purposely changed my pack, which took a lot of time. Because as you said, you want to go over every detail. You want it all to be smooth. You want to test it with friends. You want to make sure you pull it together. And so when people come to the table, they, they already are preloaded with what they're going to expect. They're not coming and get, finding out of the day up. Um, I've kind of flipped that switch as we're going into third edition and ending up second. I'm trying to just refine one pack and keep it going forward now because I'm hoping people got the message. You can run your event any way you want. When we did a uh, small podcast with uh, the frontline guys, I brought that up over and over again. It's like, look, run it the way you want. You want to put in a paint score. You want there to be a sports score. And it all gets lumped into their placements. Just turn in those scores. But make sure it's in your pack so everyone knows exactly what to expect when they walk in the door. No one wants to win five games, have their bar repainted, and lose to somebody who won four games because they people organizing thought their army was better, so it got a more score, a higher score, and they got all the sports votes and edged out a person who was five and zero. Oh. Now, if the pack says that and you do the math and you realize, oh yeah, I I might lose even if I win five games, then you're fine. But if that's not up front, you're going to have some very hurt feelings. And same thing in the other direction. If they're expecting to show up and the paint's going to be a third and the sport's going to be a third, because we had events run locally before this, that, that it was literally a third, a third, and a third. So your sports and your paint were very important because they were covering a huge chunk of the points. Um, others did it, you know, 60, 20, 20, stuff like that. So... You know, that's that's kind of important to keep track of. And now you lost the question. Yeah. No, it, 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 it's interesting <laughs> because when I think about my players pack, right, I think about, you know, some of the logistical things, you know, what time the rounds are going to start. Um, I'm, depending on the event, I'm often more willing to share what, what scenarios or what battle plans we're going to play in. Um, I know some tournament organizers like to tell them on the day. I know some of them will tell them in Australia, we have a culture as well that you submit your list two weeks in advance of the tournament. So lists are locked in. And then at that point I can announce the, uh, announce the battle plans so that people aren't gaming for a particular battle plan, particular battle plans. Um, but they've still got time to be mentally prepared of what's the scenario, how many objectives, the win conditions. Um, so I find that's one of the challenges when you announce it kind of on the spot People are like, oh shit! There could be eighteen or twelve scenarios. What what do I do and how do I set up? Um, yeah, something? very much the same. I usually I usually put it out. Uh, we collect our lists and have them in the system a week in advance, and then that's usually when I end up. This is what we're doing. Here's the visual pack and the actual games you're playing. But I've also separated it. All, all of the basic rules of how to run the event, what's going on, are online, and I've cut it down now to one piece of paper where it gives the battle plans, the basic setups, and the table setup. So it's a two-sided, one piece of paper. That way I'm not printing a giant pack. I've moved away from that because the rules are basically the same from top to bottom. Yeah. I, um, I'm usually very detailed as well. Like I'll have the awards and I'll make sure that – I think one thing I've learned 
you know, along the way as a tournament organizer is to not always put all of my dollars and prizes into like first, second and third, because people who podium already are getting the accolades. Um, they're getting the trophy. They're getting the, you know, the, the clout. It's the people, it's that fat middle of people who are coming in. I'm not saying that you're fat folks. I'm saying it's that, that, <laughs> that large so chunk in the middle great, that are there for having a good time. The people who want to just win more games than they lose, but um, you know, three and two or two and three is a good result for them. And if I can, put a lot of my prize pool here they're the ones that are going to go tell their friends and family to come play a game they're the ones who are going to come back not not putting all my prizes into first second and third um and yeah. and being generous as well like you know spreading out the prizes as opposed to getting three or five really heavy prizes yeah i i like of raffles for people who finish all their games encourage you to stay the whole time um Handing out something just for for being there, the you can get a lot of different companies to cut out acrylic of those three inch measuring sticks for stuff with the event name on it. Um, tokens for your objective markers, everybody gets one of those. Um, giving out awards for different purposes. I mean, yeah, it, your first, second, and third, they have the army they're going to have. They're usually very competitive people, and giving them prizes because a lot of the times they do these for other people for stores and stuff and they want to give away boxes of goods i'm like well this guy's not going to pick up a sylvaneth army he's already decided he can't that's not his style he's not going to play it is all he's going to do is sell this on ebay or trade it to yeah. somebody here uh far better he'd be perfectly happy getting a piece of paper that says first place a small trophy to put on his shelf but actual you know, prize money, cash things, that, that's less important for them. Yeah, I, you know, distributing the wealth has, has really worked for me. Um, anyone who's heard me talk about tournament organizing in the past, something that I implemented, so I stole it from um, Steve. When I was at Blood and Glory, I was watching Steve Wren run this narrative event, and I thought to myself, how do I steal some of what Steve Wren was doing? He now actually runs the events for Warhammer World. Uh, when I met him, he wasn't at the time, but there was something in his little players pack that I stole and I put into mind, which is negative achievements. And I thought to myself, when the negative things happen in the game, right, and each round I will provide a prize. So I'll say the first two players who fail a three-inch charge come, come to the TO desk and you get to win a prize. And normally in a game, when you fail that three-inch charge, that's shit. That, that sucks. But people get really excited. They come running to my table like, I won, I won. And, like, they're cheering about failing a three-inch charge. And it was some way that I could turn a negative into a positive and keep that kind of that charity and that raffling going ahead, as well as obviously the prizes at the top and all that stuff. But I think for me, distributing the wealth, and even when I talk to local game stores and they're like, oh, we're going to put, you know, we're going to collect X amount of money for each ticket and we'll award for first, second, and third. I'm like, well, they've already won the event. Like, that's that shouldn't that right. you, you don't have to. Like, what what you want is people coming back. People don't want to come to their store, get flogged three games, and then like you expect them to come back again and again and again. Yeah, they're not all me. I won't come. You know, I'll come back after losing three games because that's not unusual for me. So, well, people don't like the idea of paying money, but to yeah, flogged it, all the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, you want you want people to get something out of the event. You want them 
to enjoy themselves during the day and handing out little things helps. I haven't done much of that with competitive tournaments, but there were a couple of friendlies. We did like bingo games and there were things in there like roll two, casting a spell, fail to charge. Um, yeah. So there were good and bad on there. So they could check boxes. And I had um, an a case for the person who first person who got bingo, you know, and of course it's somebody who failed a whole bunch of stuff in a row and <laughs> they were excited about it. Cause they got this brand new little uh, padded a case with little electric, little metal shelves and stuff. Because so, you know, they, you know that that and made those, excited. And those top players, like if you're trying to win the grand tournament, that you know, I'm coming to win the Las Vegas Open. I don't care about the bingo card, maybe. Um, I don't care about the negative achievement. So you know, for the people who care about these things, you've got a little in-game kind of achievement you can unlock if you want to play. So I think the more ways you can think about engaging, obviously, as well as the wins and losses, is important, which is why treating best painted and coolest army is important doing things like raffles or giveaways or you know doing things that are outside of just the wins and losses i've even gone to a point where oh yeah i'm now organizing a sunday breakfast so i'll get to my event early um my 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 venues in like a like a really nice almost like a casino but not a casino and i'm like Look, if you guys want to hang out on a, on a sunday and have breakfast there's something for you as well But yeah, so like the more things you can think of, but I want to ask you, like I know you do a lot of things with frontline gaming as well. So when you, when you do events, whether it's SoCal, whether it's Las Vegas open or other things, do you have to talk to sponsors or do you have to seek out like the AK or do they kind of come to you already? Um, they usually take care of it. I'm just there to run the event, um, curate it. I write the pack. I run it at the day. I make sure the tables are set um answering all the questions about the game um they take care of the tickets and usually hand over prize support at the end for stuff like something we're gonna talk about and um they've started doing money rather than prizes which is nice but i again like to see it spread along with everybody have it hit different levels of for people to get, but they usually do um, in big events, they do three breakdowns. So it's the wins, losses, uh, paint top three, and usually Renaissance man, which is a combination of the two. And usually in Renaissance man, I throw in that if you got, um, they have a, a system online, not unlike soccer where it's a yellow card and red card. And so you're not eligible for Renaissance man. If you received a yellow card, and that's just unsportsmanlike conduct at the table, um, obvious cheating, dot, 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 which you and I both know is such a small number of people. But every time somebody says was, it, they freak out because they think it happens all the time. It's like, no, no. Well, very that's few. literally what's going to come out of my mouth was how like, I think there's probably only ever been maybe one or two people I've had to pull aside in my event for certain reasons. Um, you know, I've had, a, I've had a player who took like 45 minutes to deploy their army. Um, you know, I've had a couple of, you know, things where I've had like constant complaints about a particular person over games. Um, but very rare, like over very, very rare. Do I actually have to warn somebody or, you know, issue a red card? Um, yeah, the, what the first LVO was 60 something went back and ran it. And then the next one we were at 90 players and I had like one issue. Uh, the next one after that, we were at 120 something. So we had. Um, I had like two people I had to talk to 
<laughs> so you know, out of those numbers. Like, what do you say to people? Because I imagine there's a lot of tournament organizers who aren't a confrontational kind of person. Like, I'll walk up to someone and say, you're a dick, stop it, or I'll kick you the F out. And I know for most people that's not their style. How do you, yeah. how do you handle or what advice, what advice would you give to somebody who is in this position where they're getting uh, constant complaints about a particular person, whether they um, – because I've had, you know – people who go to the bar too often and like they're, they're leaving the table for long stretches. I've had people who just completely disappear for a certain period of time, or, you know, as you've said, you know, really stretching or even like blatantly cheating advice. How, yeah. how, how do you handle? Well, you're not at the table when some of these things happen. So you have to take a person's word for it. So typically you deliver a warning. You then keep track of that player, that table, see what's going on. Because um, I remember at one broadside, there are two guys. I've played both before. Great guys, perfectly fine. They did not get along in that game. And I had them both come and complaining. And it was just like, look, guys, it's one round. You know, get through it. I'm sure you'll be fine. And it was just kind of, in many ways, you just want to smooth over the problem because normally it's a misunderstanding. Normally it's a, a little thing. Well, he took forever to deploy his army. It's like, you do realize you have two hours and 45 minutes to finish this round. You can't spend 20, 30 minutes just putting yourself on the table. You've got to be ready to go. And you know, then you, if you get pushed back, you kind of have to you know spell it out for them. So uh, it brings out the teacher voice. Yeah. Occasionally. Um, so I, uh, you kind of just you know, point out, look, I've, I played, Greenskins at the very first LVO. I had a boatload of models. I finished all of my games, but the last one to a, a completion. And the only reason it wasn't the last one, it was me and John Fuhrhelm, who were both Gabby, and we we're both low end, so we didn't care except to move our models and have a good time, him with his rats and me with my boys. So, you know, I know you can do it if you just come in and get to it. Um, if that doesn't work, then you kind of have to say, look, it's, it helps to have a structure in place for it. So you can just point to rules. This isn't appropriate because dot, dot, dot. You need to finish it, dot, dot, dot. Uh, um, with three and going back and forth, I'm not sure chess clocks are any kind of an answer, but the top tables of the last LBO, they had enforced chess clocks. You had a time frame. Um, and so there, there's no problem that happens at the table you can't deal with a certain way. With people who um, are repetitive issues, uh, bullying at the table. And that can happen lots of ways. Uh, some just that you let them get away with something they're not allowed to get away with, but then won't let you, you know, a take back to last turn because I forgot to roll a spell. And then when it comes to fade that favor back, they don't. Um, constantly uh, pushing rules, getting a rule wrong on purpose. And then you correct them and come back. You, you just immediately have to tell them, look, you know, you have to go. And I know it feels bad, but when it's happened and it's obvious, there are plenty of people who come by my table and say, thank you. Thank you for getting that guy out of here. Thank you for changing that situation. When some of these things have happened, I've had people just come by going, that was, you know, that needed to happen. And because the players who care, they're seeing this and they know what's going on very few very rare thank goodness but 
Most of the time, it's misunderstandings when it comes to timing or rules. There are a lot of rules. I've played plenty of games where I get a rule wrong. <laughs> you know, you're trying out your Sylvaneth for the first time. You place the woods wrong. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't uh, meant to hurt anybody's feelings. You just put it in the wrong place. Um, so most of the time I find when someone complains, somebody just doesn't know the rules. They don't get that they have to be quick. They don't realize the inconvenience they're putting on the other player. And it usually corrects itself when I point it out. It's like they're here too. They need to finish. So don't be afraid to mention it. Be kind at first. Then when you have a problem, you just, you basically pull out your rules that you already set up and said, this is what's going on. You've got to either follow it or the door's over there. And like I said, I've so rarely had to do that. Yeah. Like for me, the players pack is so important as well, because in my players pack, um, I'll have etiquette, you know, you must be at the table deploying within 10 minutes. You know, I'll have very specific things around what I expect at the event. And that that player's etiquette is my reference point to say that you've you've come to my event, you paid for a ticket, you need to adhere to these rules. And if you don't adhere to these rules, I can I can ask you to leave. I can, you know, uh, remove your results and you, right. know, you, you get no wins on the tournament. Um, I think the other challenge that I've always had as a tournament organizer, and it's something that I'm working through that I'm getting better and I've got ideas, is um is one most of the time people complain to me after the event or you know at the end of the day so i have an issue in like you know game one and someone comes up to me at the end of game three and says oh i had an issue with scott and i'm like it's it's been yep. like what, what can i do at this point it's a bit of he say, he says she says kind of i can't do anything as an event organizer and i've been playing with an idea of how do i get people to talk to me because a lot of players I find are not confrontational. They don't want to start something at the table and they they don't like the idea of calling over a judge or a TO to intervene because then they feel like they could be a bad sport, could create like tension. They've got to play this game for the next two hours with this person. So I've been kind of like talking about how you can like message me privately through the Facebook group or from, uh, you know, the event page or whatever. So that if you want me to a tournament organizer to come over and check the table, you can do it in a non-confrontational kind of way. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to master this approach, but I'm trying to find how do I get more complaints um, as opposed to trying to deal with them at the end of the event where I can't do anything. Right. Yeah. We've had that a lot where a guy, um, he deployed his army and the person played the other player clearly um but the guy you know we only got to turn two and i looked at both just the turn the player who slow played would have won he didn't have yeah. the models to stay on after that thing it is and uh, you like to see that. Uh, you know. Yeah. 
I know it's us coming here for you. Sorry, I, would, I think my internet might be playing up. It could be could be Sunday having lols and drinks. You still with me, Scott? All right. <laughs> Thanks. I think Scott Scott might might be playing up. Maybe it's Scott. Cool. Scott, I think your your internet might be playing up. I've been told it's your internet. Um. You still good? Cool. Yeah, I think I think while Scott's internet might catch up. Um, you hearing me you know, now? Can, uh, it's kind of robotic at the moment. I thought I thought it might be my internet having a like a lazy Sunday. Um, I think you know, like when I think about yeah, just sportsmanship in general is just making sure that you know you're protecting your overall event and you're making sure that everybody is having a good time as opposed to. It might be back. You're back. Am I? You're good. Yes, your internet was uh, going robotic, and I thought it might have been me, and I was trying to sort out my tech. Uh, I went over to another thing, so we'll see if that holds up. <laughs> cool. We're good. So the, we talked players pack. We talked about the etiquette. We talked about just things that you need to do to set the scene. Um, I know for me, one of the other things that I always think about is location. And uh, I know Frontline Gaming does a lot of your location. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spitball some ideas and just make sure, um, you know, see if, if you have any thoughts. But when I do my events and when I'm doing event organizing, um, using my local game store is always a good place. So if I can partner with yeah, a, um, a game one, store, yeah. is, is definitely um, the way to go because it means that I don't need to worry about tables and terrain. Um, they can often give me price support either very cheaply or they might have stock that they're happy to get rid of to bring in, you know, X amount of players in store. Um, I've looked and used community centers. I've used, um, I've got like a, an old school that, you know, in my community, I can hire their hall on a Sunday and things like that. And, um, and run events and again they've got tables i bring in my terrain i bring in my mats but it's very 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 cheap um and uh funnily enough they often play a lot of sports there on a sunday so if there happens to be like you know mum and dad cooking up barbecue and and having like a bit of food you know i can tap into that as well and cut down my costs but then i also run big events at you know hotel type type places and that obviously costs a lot of money so Pricing my ticket has to be really important. Uh, yeah, here um, schools are usually out of the question. They're 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 government run. They don't want you anywhere near them in off hours. But we have a whole lot of different like Elks clubs, Rotors clubs, um, VA, um, little places that just have their own hall, which are really cheap to rent. And on the upside, um, before we change over to um, AOS and the old world died, some locals north of me always ran it at an Elks Lodge. And the benefit of the Elks Lodge is it has its own bar, and that bar is cheap. They, they're not looking to make a profit, so everything's sold at price. I was getting my drinks, you know, pretty much considered free considering bar prices. And um, those are, are big ones. Community centers are the same here. You can always book a community center. They're usually cheap. Um, you can barbecue outside. You can do all sorts of things when it's considered. Um, long as you're not trying to make a profit, you can get under the radar pretty easily when it comes to uh, regulations and stuff, depending on your state or 
country. Um, but there are a lot of churches don't mind renting out their hall, particularly when you pick days that nobody's going to be using it, you know, um, avoiding holidays, empty times. They're willing to go ahead and open it up. If you're going to clean, if you volunteer to clean it up, put everything away when you're done, which your players will do for you. If you mm -hmm. put in, you know, at eight 15, I need help setting up the tables. You'll get more than a few gentlemen who come walking in and help you out. And if you say, Hey, I could use these a few people to stay 30 minutes afterwards, stack the tables where we found them and sweep the floor. And it, it usually gets done is you just need to put in the initiative to start. If you're not doing anything as a TO, this is the secret of leadership for everything. If you don't know it, um, if you want people to do something, you don't sit back and ask them to, you just start doing it. And it's amazing how they just come along to help, you know, well, my <laughs> secret leader, source, that's he, the way it works. He's my, he's my secret source then um, for my GT at the very end, I've always got like 15 to 20 minutes of time to calculate the results. Right. Um, and I have to, you know, I have to look at the scores. I need to, you know, prepare yeah. for all the winners. I use that 20 minute buffer to say, Hey, your games are finished. Pack up my tables. So the sooner the tables are packed away, the sooner I can do the results. And then it just means it's really quick. Um, and everyone, yep. as you said, is willing to help. Otherwise, if I don't say that, players will just sit around talking and, you know, it's all great. Yep. But then all the pressure's on me to pack up, close down, which is not fair because I'm not getting a lot of reward. I'm not running this for profit. I'm not playing games over this period of time. So there's very little incentive for me. Give me a hand. Yeah, they... I find most people want to help. It's usually pretty easy. And I also have everything set up, but part of being organized, one box, one table. Everything on the table goes in the box that's under it. Put the mat on top of the box, set it aside. That simple. And it, that helps people clean things up, put everything away. Once they know that, because you know, a lot of times events, when I borrowed other people's stuff when I got started, it was all just packed into boxes, and then they would just try to refit it all back into a boxes in helter skelter manner rather than here's my table one here's my table two here's my table three and if you look at my boxes i have them labeled <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, it's I'm just so that. fast at the, I've got, at the moment i've got big but cases that i need to bring down into small cases yeah it's it's helping i help them to help me because if they just look and see that it goes in there and it's all padded already ready to go just just take care of it you're done I want to talk third edition and, um, you know, we've, we, there's a lot of things that we can talk about with TOs, right? You know, we could talk about tournament software. We could talk about marketing and, you know, how do you encourage people to come? You could talk about the like, tournament organizing is an art. And for anyone who wants to know more, I've got a couple of other videos that you could kind of go back and listen to. I've done like team tournaments. I've done narrative. I've done grand tournaments. I've done, I had Domus talk to me about GTs. You know, and I've even got like a Clint who's talked to me about players pack. So, they, you know, this is this is a really detailed kind of topic, but I am conscious of third edition. Right. And I mentioned right at the top of the show that I'm coming out of lockdown in, in less than 12 hours. I'm looking to set up my first tournament for my community. Right. You know, I've got a, a one day. Then the following weekend, the local game store is going to run about 20 to 30 players on a one day. Then I have my grand tournament in January. So I have a short period of time where I need to get my players up to speed so I can run an effective grand tournament of 100-odd players. When we talk about the changes of third edition, what did that bring to the table for you? Was it as simple as you know going from 2E to 3E, or was there actually changes you needed to consider? 
the well, the size of the table is changing. So back to a touch of logistics, they're a little smaller. Gives you a little more room between tables. Um, I'm hoping not to fill that space, but actually leave it open so people feel like they have some space. I was going to ask you, did you? Does that mean I can just cram more players into my event because there's less space? You know, I I have run events for people who want to get every last dollar, and it's not fun to be crammed in. Um, SoCal opens down at a giant um, fairground hall. It's huge. Even if I got twice as many people, we're going to have plenty of space. So we literally space those tables out when we get the chance. So yeah, don't consume extra space if you can actually get it. Let it let it breathe. Even if it's a place for them just to get away from the table to stand at. Um, so the tables are smaller. You have less pieces of terrain. So I have to go through my boxes and now adjust. Uh, we have purposes for our terrain and descriptions um, for third. I added impassable, just a hill or a thing to, to go around. Um, a lot of pieces, garrison terrain's already in quote unquote impassable. You can't land on it. You have to fly over it or go around it or go through it if you're small enough. Um, so I have a lot of mine where I cut foam hills yeah, and I, I like to see those as impassable. Um, do you mark it? So those on, do you actually mark it on the, on the terrain or how do you, how do you get that message of impassable and, and, um, garrisonable? Well, um, I've done one event that way and it didn't work out well. Uh, cause I said in the front of the, in the front of the page for the day, every terrain will have have a rule you and your player need to work that out um so i didn't have a set set of rules i had little maps with t's for where the terrain goes for each battle because the objectives move and they have to be a certain distance away and so that was kind of another setup for just the the tables and the pieces uh they want the defender to set the terrain in the rules and i figured i'd embrace that and let them but that's why i had the t's you can put the woods wherever you'd like, but they have to be on one of these sections. So the defender could put, you know, because the way it's set up now, the defender sets the table, the attacker chooses. Mm -hmm. And the winner of the roll decides, if, of the first roll decides of their defender or attacker. So you could set your woods in the middle of the table and other places, but you're incentivized to spread it evenly, just like when mom gave us a candy bar or a brownie with our little brother and said, here you go, you cut, he chooses. So, you know, that's the way terrain works now. And I found when the players got used to it, it was quick enough. Um, there was some concern that would take too long. Um, third edition. See, it's interesting because as a TO, um, sorry to cut you off, but no, just, no, talking, just talking terrain, I like to set my tables and I like the idea of my players just rocking up to the table, rolling priority to see which side they're going to choose. And I've kind of, at the end of second edition, I'd gotten to a point as well where in first edition, I loved rolling mysterious terrain. In second edition, I loved it when the tournament organizer had set it already. So I rock up to the table. I see the six or eight pieces of terrain. I know what's arcane, what's deadly, what's mystical. And, and I just got onto it. So for me at the moment, and, uh, you know, this is really interesting to hear from you. As a tournament organizer, I was just going to set all the tables. I was going to have you yep. know, very clear markings to say what is what. And then some bonuses like garrisonable and, you know, impassable and any other rules that I want to put onto the table. Yeah, and that's that's something I've been doing for a while. Uh, 
just getting the terrain in place. I saw other people putting things on the terrain, what it's going to be, but I decided to put all that on the defender. Mm-hmm. He's going to set the train. He's going to roll the dice. He's going to pick what goes where and the other player chooses one. It's, it means your table's not going to be the same every round Two, And I'm, I'm not sure you have the same problem in Australia. Maybe they're much politer there. But I would have come up to a table I know I organized, and it looks like somebody put down an army tray right on the table, shoved all my terrain to one corner, and then walked off to their table, leaving it in that disarray. And someone rocked up to play and just left the terrain where it is, not thinking to themselves, why are there three hills on my side of the table and two forests, and he's only got one building? What happened here? No, they I don't find the it. common sense. I, I See, I find people would change it. Like, they'll notice that there's this clear army case void on the table and now and now at least in my experience people will actually move it and fill the gaps and that uh yeah uh, most or, of them usually or, push them back to some degree but i've walked by tables where literally you can see the tray hole on the table and they just played with the train where it was and you're like you you thought this was i oh no you know no. see see that's that's where me you know worst case myself and my uh, tournament organizers will walk around the table and adjust terrain as appropriate especially when you do things like best painted and coolest armies, they often set it up on their table. So yeah, you've got these big like two by two kind of squares where a display board was sitting, and um, yeah, you've got to reorganize yeah. the tables. Yeah, those are easy to fix. I mean, after lunch in between times, you can move those things and get them set up and put them back in some shape. But like from rounds two to three, where it's a fifteen minute or twenty minute break. Usually I'm being asked questions. I'm being interrupted. If I want to go look at the tables, I can rarely make a circuit, particularly if we're talking about hundred players or more. I just, that's a lot of tables, even for me and the couple people helping me, that's just too many, too many tables to all go fix. Um, plus uh, the honest war gamer was talking about how the terrain needs to be different for each battle because those, we have less space and we're supposed to be three inches away from a uh, objective marker six inches away from another piece of terrain, three inches from the edge. Um, so I just put little, like I said, put a little T so they know generally where all that's supposed to go. And the defender just decides what goes where and rolls and marks them. I It worked out okay. We'll see after SoCal if I still keep it because it's experimental for me. This is not my normal. Normally I set my tables. Everything's in its proper place. I have done events where I put tokens out to make sure everybody knows what stuff is or leave the option up to them to even use mysterious terrain. But uh, yeah, it's, this is new for me because the edition set it that way. But yeah, I usually, I want control over everything because I want it to look perfect. And I'm, I'm trying to let go of that. And, you know, the great thing as well here is that um, tournament organizers have their own flavor to their events. So you can listen to this and, and, and feel more like Scott and go, look, I like how he's, you know, doing these defined sets and, you know, you manipulate it. You could be like me, and you like to, you know, the reason I, I like to fix my terrain and I like to put down, you know, arcane and mystical and sinister is because I always find that um, a lot of the time, especially early in the edition, players are, aren't completing the full five rounds. Um, people are stretched. People are rushing. Um, and, you know, either A, do I blow out the round times and do I have a really long day that goes for like, 10 hours or be or you know even longer than 10 hours you know if you average like you know it could be a two and a half hour game with 15 minutes of deployment i've seen some people running events now which are three hours and 15 minutes per round 
So if you add that for three, three rounds plus lunch, you're looking at a 12 hour day. Um, you know, for me, one of the reasons I like to provide lunch within my ticket and I like to set my terrain is I can compress my, my times because one, I don't need to give you an hour for lunch because I've sourced your lunch. You only get 30 minutes. You know, you don't have to worry about finding lunch. It's all sorted. Um, and two, two um, with the round times, if it's, you know, if it's at 10, 15 minutes of trying to set up terrain and, you know, roll up, you know, the mysterious landscapes rules, that's done. That's 10 more minutes of game time and you don't have to rush. That's my logic. That's how I try to look at it. Well, and, and like I said, I, I often set them up myself. I'm just trying this new thing and you may think it's crazy. It might be. I, I might be done with SoCal and rip that right out of my pack and never do it again. I don't know. But um, you have to try some new things every once in a while and see if they work. It's And just be willing to let it not work. Um, yep, I've, I've, I've tried plenty of... I, I've done plenty of things. I've done plenty of things and I and I've it hasn't worked the way I've wanted it. And you just learn and you grow. You, as a tournament organizer, you never get it right all the time. Yeah. Uh, other concerns when well, you talk about round times with the, the table setup. That was a big concern we talked about before the uh, Lone Star Open, and I left it at two hours and forty five minutes. I was originally thinking of shortening the time. Is that total? I, Is that total of two hours forty five? For the round, yeah. And I was really concerned in the doubles because not very many tables were finishing. The first round of the GT, I had a lot of people not exactly finishing, but in round two, they were getting to the end of games. Round three and four, I was seeing more completed runs. So I think a lot of this stuff with choosing your tactics, um, maneuvering the new rules and stuff, and the interruptions back and forth of redeploying or going ahead and, you know, give them hell and all that stuff is going to, um, it's going to take some getting used to, but I think once we do the old two hour 45 might be okay. You might want to go to three, but I think the two hour 45 will be okay. Once you get used to just rolling and getting out there to do it. Uh, a lot of the rules have been streamlined and simplified, but then they threw that extra wrench in of all these things I can do as the opponent during your turn. Yeah, even just battle tactics, like people choosing a battle tactic, I notice it takes, you know, on average, you know, let's say two to five minutes per battle tactic. That could, you know, over the five rounds with, with two players, that's potentially an extra half an hour until we get that muscle memory to go, right, I know I'm going to go sway, sway, slay the warlord. I know I'm going to go ferocious advance. It's still very yeah. much, uh, let's look at the options, what's available to me, what can I achieve, is there a monster I can achieve this with? And those couple of minutes just add over time. Yeah, the, the new tactics are really hard for some armies to decide because there's only a few of them you can do reliably and the others you're going to have to think about. Now, I'm a kind of go-for-broke approach kind of player, which you know, Iron Jaws is my main army, so you play to my strengths. Go low off the board. Yeah, and so I'll pick, like, I'm going to take an objective for you the first turn. That one in the back corner over there, I'm hoping I get my spell off. But that one's harder at different points of the game. If I can manage it then, I've got it off the table. And the easier ones to do are still left in front of me. Um, but players are going to have to figure out their style. How do you get these done? And as every army gets new ones, which GW, no, 
No. Yeah, okay, anyway. They're coming. We've, 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 <laughs> we've they already are. seen it. We've seen White Dwarf. I know we've they seen are. Battle Tomes. <laughs> they're coming. Um, well, for Giants, for Giants, the new battalions, it made sense because I had to tell a bunch of people at LSO. It's like, no, no, your Giants can't fit in that battalion. No, you can't do that battalion. No, you can't do. And they're like, well, but it's a monster. Yeah, a monster that's not a leader. Well, this one, it has to be this. Yeah, but it, the battle line that doesn't do that. And I'm yeah. like, and I felt so bad for them. It's like, yeah, you can only do one thing. The uh, basic one drop battalion is the only thing you fit in. So they needed something to play with. That was fine when they came out. And I figured, oh, that's all they'll do. And then the books get in our hands like, oh, no, that's not all we're going to do. So you'll have those series of battle taxes to figure out. You have, uh, that'll add a little time to people's thinking, but maybe they'll get faster at it. I think I think it will. I give it six months, and the, the the muscle memory will kick in. Depending on how long we sit in Gur, if we move out of the Gur the Gur battle packs and we start playing in, I don't know, I don't I, I don't know how long we're going to play in this this kind of landscape, but I think it will become faster over time. The other one, as you mentioned, is the redeploy. It's the rally. It's the unleash hell. It's those additional interactions that makes me wonder if we need to be almost at a three hour round and yeah you know you i can know see an mean? argument like, for it yeah yeah I, I think for me personally at the moment while my community is learning third i think the three hours kind of makes sense but then again give it three six twelve months and as people are ending games earlier they're really in the swing of things and age of sigma three is like this unconscious competency of just knowing exactly what to do then you probably yeah. can compress it back to where we ended second edition yeah, um, third edition battle plans. We're going to roll into an, another thing with third edition. Those, the battle plans, the setup for them is really easy. Everything goes on your 11, 15s, just multiples thereof and across the board. So that's easy. Far better than what they did for 40K, which is like, let's measure from the center. Oh, great. Thanks, guys. You know, uh, they put it on the, on the corners. So that's nice and fast. Um, but they did some of the same stuff. We have ones with random scoring. Um, the FAQ changed what I really liked. Uh, what was it? Savage Gains. I liked that one, and then they FAQ'd that all the objectives, you can score each objective in the middle. Well, now Giants has kicked one to the middle, and they've got an extra two-point objective to hold on to. As were before, where it was worded, you control A objective. Oh, okay, great. Then you kick in the middle if you'd like. You get two points for whichever, however many you control. That's fine. So a lot of Giant players wouldn't do it right away. They'd wait. And, you know, time the right moment to get it out of the way if somebody's going to take it from them. But they've changed that wording, so I purposely just wrote that one out of the pack for SoCal. I was like, oh, I'm going to kill that. Oh, it's gone. I don't want to well, deal with that today. <laughs> that's the segue I wanted to move into. I, I do want to go quickly into board size changes for a minute because I mentioned at the top of the show I own 55 battle mats. I own uh, – it's a lot of battle mats. And for me, and I'm sure there's many people like me, maybe not as crazy owning so many, but what do you do or do you have any recommendations? Did you cut up your, your battle mats? Did you just zone it off with, you know, I've seen plumbers tape and things like that, just marking yeah. off the zones and keeping that spare bit for people's models and books and things. Um, what did you do? Because I think the other concern for me is what happens in 12 months' time if there is a an apocalypse version of Age of Sigma? that goes into, you know, and we go back to six by fours for a version of the game. And do I want to have battle mats that can kind of do an apocalypse kind of style? Yeah, I have been cutting them because I just, for my tournament stuff, 
I've been cutting those mats slowly but surely. I have the the rolling fabric cutter. The, fab the, the fabric cutter. Yeah, don't use don't use the scissors that I've seen. Don't use scissors. There are measure. There are, don't, yeah, measure across. Don't measure from the edge. I cut the first one. I'm like, it's using two inches from this side, two inches from that side. Cut it all, and then measure it and realize like it's smaller than it needed to be because the mat wasn't perfect already. So the rest of my measure just the space, the internal rather than the external. So I made sure I got them all done. I'm not nearly finished yet. Um, but if it were my personal mats, I wouldn't I wouldn't cut them. I'd just tape them off or, you know, just put a line down. This is where it the, it ends. And but for for ease of getting it on the table and not having tape curl up and have to replace it. And I just thought in my head. And I work with third graders, since like I said, uh, eight, nine year olds. All sorts of stuff goes wrong. And I'm not comparing players to eight and nine year olds. Do it. Do it. Um, children. So <laughs> children, you've got to you've got to hold their hand sometimes. But you know, that tape's gonna peel up and somebody's gonna come over. Oh, okay, let's get this out of the way. And like, oh, okay. Uh, so I figured just cutting my mats is the easiest way to get that done. Um, adjusting my boxes. So yeah, I have started cutting. But I, I have a long T. I put a, I clamped the metal ruler down. I have a big wooden table behind me here and just started working away at them. I know, yeah. I know. I felt the same way the first few, and like after that, it's like ah, it's okay. It's I just gotta keep going. <laughs> I don't have the grape. I don't have the grapefruits to do that. I'm I'm sitting here going, oh, what if, what if? Oh, I don't want to do it just yet. I but know. I've seen some other cool uh, cool companies that will use like MDF converters, but at a scale of having again fifty metal mats with these MDF converters, it's too expensive. It's not worth the hassle for me, so I'm not touching it. But as we're grabbing um, a roll of blue painter tape, is you know two bucks, and you can do all of your tables. Yeah. Zone it off with the with the painter's tape or whatever whatever tape it might be. Um, but the other one, like we were just talking about, which was going to be your battle tactic scenario, and this really came up for me last weekend at the Warhammer Open. Um, I don't know if you saw the. I don't know if I'd call it a controversy just yet, but I was looking at one of the battle packs that they chose at the Warhammer Open Orlando, and it was a one nil kind of victory. You know, in the old days where you'd have like win loss and um, you know yeah. one one object. Yeah, you you claim the objectives and it's worth one. Like it's it's either win or lose. I can't remember what it was, but anyway, the way that they had scored their tournament was an accumulation of battle tactics over time. So this one particular scenario, if you won the the game, you won it with one battle tactic. Like one victory point. Sorry, victory point is what I want to say, not battle tactic. So as you accumulated your victory points over the course of the five rounds or five games, um, that victory was only worth one compared to someone who might have scored big with a loss. But it meant that it means that a player who went three and two could jump four and one and five and oh if you scored big. You know what I mean where I'm going with this? So right. I guess my question is how do you think about battle tactic selection and scoring um you know wins and losses do you go 20 and 0 do you go like what's your thinking yeah so like the the mission missions like that where you can win instantly early on if you're going to do it by points you're basically if you're good at it you're going to cheat yourself a lot of points because every turn you're getting two or three from your battle tactics which that encourages the kg player who wants to get those points to just make the game go longer when it clearly could have been over, which isn't any fun for the guy sitting across the table. Um, but yeah, I've, um, 
So teaching is creative theft. I'm going to borrow what you did because it's cool and I'm going to change it to make it me. But, you know, and you're always doing that. The same thing as TOs. I saw that in um, a pack for Du Bois in Rochester, New York, they did a scaled 0-20 system based on the point difference between the players. So I've borrowed that and used it over and over again. And the hard part is refining it to each mission because some of them you're going to score 30 points. If you're on it, you're going to get to 30. So that differential needs to be broader in split for your 0-20 than for ones where it's it's hard to get past 20 at all. You know, Because some of them where there's not enough objectives to get one, two, and more. Um, or where literally you're fighting over one for part of it. Or you can't do easier objectives. I've seen them, some of them where you know, we're barely scoring almost 20 in some of them in a competitive game where you're both pushing each other off things. So I give them um, a, 10, a 20 split based on the difference in points. And I've revised that system for what I'll be, what I did in uh, Lone Star. And again, at uh, I'll do it again in SoCal. If it doesn't work, I'll check it out. But I've been using that off and on in my events since they did it all the way over in that one. And it, that's, you know, a big tip for anybody. Do look what somebody else did, steal what you like, throw away what you don't, and figure out how to use it. But I figured that was a good way to do it because not everyone's going to score the same. And there's no perfect system, even if not hard to try. But I think that one's closer to a better way of getting it done rather than raw points. Which is what we used to do. Oh, we could, yeah, because, you know, in, in second edition, we'd often have, you know, major victories worth X, a minor victories worth X, a draw, et cetera, et cetera. And then there'd be a tiebreaker of either kill points or auxiliary objectives. And there'd be some type right. of like, denial. You know, there'd be some combination of that to determine how you kind of progressed up the ladder. Um, battle tactics then changes things. Like kill points isn't – like we don't we don't seem to be tracking kill points anymore. Um yeah, for, for us that died in first because it's just a terrible way to track who does what. Because if I'm playing with Nurgle, I'm not killing things in many Nurgle armies. I'm just surviving it. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think you know your key point there is there's been a lot of great events. You know, literally right now as we speak, you know, you've got um what is it? You've got Michigan GT running, you've got there's a UK event, um, something Carnage. I think Bobo might be running. There is, you know, you've you've mentioned, you know, the Warhammer Warhammer Opens. There's so many events that are happening right now. You can really look at the ways that people are already interpreting this. And you don't have to create a players pack or an event from scratch. Borrow, steal, mongrel your own players pack to kind of fit your own world. Um, but with with uh, uh, scenarios, the other the other call out I'd probably make here is when you start going through these ones where you can win, you know, in turn three you know, or auto wins or things like that. If that happens, you're potentially going to play a waiting around an hour, just sitting there idling their thumbs because they got, you know, owned in round three and like, what do they do now? So like from an event point of view, you can't kind of speed everything up because some players are still playing, but you've got right. people sitting there idle for an hour or so. And if your venue is not close to something else, they're literally just sitting there doing nothing. Yeah, and I've always thrown those scenarios in in the past, like in round three, day one. You get done early and want to go enjoy Vegas or go enjoy the sights of San Diego, you're done. You know, see you tomorrow morning. Um, but with the score differential 
well, score differential is easy enough to cover, but now that you can get two battle tactics every turn, that's more points you're leaving on the table if you're going to separate by points afterward. Um, but the way I handled that was the same differential. You got a 20-0 and 0 if you ended it in turn three. Yeah, you got it done. Turn four, that moved down a little bit. Turn five, it moved here. If it had to be decided by holding objectives, because I always did the one with four. So either you had to hold all four to close it out, and in the last round, it was considered a draw if you held three. So if you held three of them, I had another point score for that, and on and on. But um, yeah, those ones that can be done really quick, you want them in a spot where people are free to leave. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good call, actually, having it as round three. Round three, especially because you don't want people leaving your event early on day two. Um, you want people to be around for the awards ceremony and the prizes. But if somebody wants to go out drinking, gambling, go out to go dinner early, um, that's actually not a bad time. Um, I wouldn't do it for round two, even though the temptation is there for lunch, um, because then they're having like a, uh, maybe a two-hour lunch, which is not yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the new one for it, I don't really like at all. And the way you score that, it's that's really tricky if you're separating by score. Um, generally, like at the um, uh, Lone Star Open, it was your top points, your, your win-loss spread was the top thing to check after win-loss. Then it was the number of battle tactics completed for overall rankings, and then the number of grand strategies completed if they weren't decided by the first two. And that's what they already set up for the game, so I just carried that out to the whole tournament. It was a little more complicated than I thought to collect that information, but you know, already having done ones under my belt, it'll be easier the next time and the next. So, Speaking of collecting that data, um, can because I, I know the tournament software that I use often, which is tabletop.to. I don't know if they've implemented a third edition scoring metrics just yet. And I imagine you use things like best coast pairings or um, yeah. I, I use down under pairings as well, which I'm assuming at one point they're going to emerge eventually. I know that happened last year. But from a TO software point of view, are you finding that you're having to use Excel to kind of manually calculate this stuff? Or are you finding things like BCP helpful to you to do some of this stuff? Um, so they're currently working on a round-by-round -round score add-in. So you would pick what your tactic is on, on your phone. Within and, BCP. Yeah. Um, but right now, if we drew, but you got one more tactic than me, it still counts it as a draw and gives it a 0.5 in the first pairing metric which means we would be equal in that system and it would just randomly say we're all in like second place. So they're, they're working on trying to get that straightened out. I hope because one thing I found we have a lot more ties coming. Yeah. The way these scores work out, if you have two equally matched players who are pushing each other back and forth, those scores are way closer than they've ever been. And you're going to get, you're going to get ties that are separated by, I did get my tactic in round four and you didn't. You know, so that's that's coming along the pipe. But what I did was I just put in the general scoring, and what we did is the first score goes in the hundreds place value, the number of tactics you achieve goes in the tens, and the ones is your grand strategy. So it's a, a sorry, one or a zero. Sorry, what 
Sorry, what does that mean? Sorry, <laughs> just just for just for the layman's right. So you said 110 and ones. Talk to, talk to me about this this because there's a lot of people probably thinking, how do I score wins and losses, especially when you got getting big events. So what you can do is pick a place value for the points you give by the ranking you want them. It would be the same if you're uh, working a spreadsheet out. And what you're looking to do is, so you win the game and the split is 13-7. So you're going to put 13. You got five of your tactics. I got four. You're going to put five. And you got your grand strategy one. So your score is 13-5-1. Mine mm-hmm. would be seven, four. Let's say I got mine one. Now, those points are helping me separate who completed a tactic and who didn't as we go through the whole tournament. Right. So I'm accumulating. So on my ladder, I'm accumulating my uh, victory points. I'm accumulating how many battle tactics I score and how many grand strategies I score. So Right. So at the end, if you tied with Clint on your differential points, you're both 5-0, and oh, you both have the same number of differential points, it would go to battle tactics. And if your battle tactics, you got five each game for a total of 25, and he got 24, that immediately mathematically separates them by that one point in the tens place of your score set. It sounds right, complicated, so you, but once you put it on paper, it's really simple. So if, yeah, because I'm, I'm imagining like an Excel graph here. So I'm still tracking my 5-0 and o or my 4-1. and one. So 4-1 and one is still my primary, but then how do I separate myself from all the other four and ones. Well, first off, it's then how many battle tactics I've scored. If I'm then comparable with exactly somebody else, then it would look at grand strategies and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And you can put that in one, they have one entry point right now for that. So you just do it as a number. So it was literally 13. And eventually that just sets the, the score system. Um, there's one overlap for those of you who know math and are listening. I'm going to have to move that to the thousands place. So if you do get five, five, and five, you don't have two points sneaking into your tens or your hundreds place. Right. Okay. Mate, I, think, I think we just, I, I think we just, we've, we've moved from tournament organizer to maths hammer. To mathematics. Um, yes. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Back I, I, think, I think, I, I think that's probably one other thing is like, how do I score a tournament, especially when you start, Look, if I'm if I'm running something local with like ten players or twenty players, it, it's not that big of a deal. But right. when I start going into the hundreds or even fifty or more, is how do I separate the pack? So I think I think that is the key there, folks. Whether you are including paint scores or no paint scores, sports points or no sports points, um, how you differentiate the pack because you might find yourself with two or three players who went five and zero. Oh. You might find ten or fifteen players all in this four and one or three and two again, depending on how big your event is. So, how do you separate them? And for some organizers, they like this best overall. I think you called it uh, Renaissance Man. They call it Renaissance Man, yeah. So you you could include point score. Uh, I know people who will use sports points as a differentiator. So I like yep. to define my my best sports. So if I'm going to do sports points, um, I want to clearly define it. It's just like. Yes, yeah, Scott's a nice guy, five points, or nah, he's a dick, zero points. It's like these five specific things. Do you, were, were, were they clear and concise with their rules? Uh, 
did they, you know, roll their dice, you know, and, and, right. and declare and declare intention to say, I'm going, you know, my uh, my model hits on threes and they roll the dice as opposed to rolling the dice and go, oh, yeah, no, they all hit on twos <laughs> because that's the result, right? Like, you know, they, 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 you know, all those things that make up a good sport, do you include them and, and how do you define them? Because I think sports is one of those weird ones where was this person nice? Did they buy me a beer? Or do you define it some way? Right. Um, the better ways I've found is either a questionnaire of specific points. Did they show up on time? Did they do this? Or the one I replaced it with was it's real simple. You didn't get a yellow card. You didn't get a comment. You started seven points. One person chose you at the end as their favorite opponent. You get plus three. You're at 10. A second person chose you. You're now at 12. A third person chose you. You're now at 13. And anything past that will be best sports. That 13 points gets lumped into the overall tournament. Um, it's a th that way I do it at the end of the game or at the end of the whole tournament rather than round by round and accumulating papers. I did that a few times. You just look at stacks of papers and almost everybody circles the top number. I don't need to collect that data. If you're going to do that, I need to collect the problem. So when I give it to a thumb, I have a thumbs down and I would go to talk. Okay. Is this legit? What happened at this table? Oh, all right, great. You're losing your sports points. You're seven points down, you know, and, and move on with my day. Um, so that, I found that way quicker than round by round because I found everybody was just circling the top number. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, like, the, 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 the teacher in you will appreciate this. I've actually kind of flipped it around as well. And everyone, everyone now starts on five out of five sports and they lose it. So, you know, everyone, <laughs> everyone starts at five. And then if you aren't at the table on time, if, you know, you kind of lose, because you're right, like most people will rate five out of five. The challenge that I've got, though, is sometimes with sports, what is a hard list versus what is a hard player? If I'm running Marathi, Gotrek, 15 Bow Snakes, some people will rate that person a two out of five for sports. And they did everything right. right. They're, they're a good player. They, they, they just ran a hard list that was legal, but it wasn't a good sport. So I think that's where, you, as you've just said, defining it with a checklist and going, right, this is what... This is right. what we define as good sports alleviates the list from the player. Yeah. And well, and that would like with the thumbs down, I can go and talk, well, what was the problem? Cause I also want to reach that player and point out, you know, they just brought a tough list and they played the game, right? You didn't like the way they did it, but there's nothing they, in my conversation with you, nothing went wrong. Everything was legal. They just brought, they, they brought the rock to your scissors and that was that. Yeah. So that was another, you know, both are great ways to get it settled. Is just either checks or some quick way at the end. One, one thing that's always been burning to me is um, how do I expand my events and how do I Oof, grow yeah. over time, right? And I'm, I've been really fortunate that I started off with small events and I've really grown it up. And, you know, my 100-player event has a waiting list of 20 to 30 and it has nothing to do with being an internet personality it has everything to do with running good events. Just because I'm a YouTuber doesn't mean that I'm a good event organizer. So growing an event and getting people to bring their friends, to encourage their uh, club mates to, you know, to to to, to grow is, is important and bringing new blood. And as I look at my own Discord and Facebooks and all those things, I'm seeing more and more new players picking up the hobby for the first time, whether they are old fantasy battle players coming back, 40K players jumping over, war machine players or even just new players to warhammer in general i'm seeing more of them jumping into third and i'm 
I'm thinking to myself, what do I need to do as an event organizer to incentivize these first timers? Because tournaments have this reputation, which I think is unjust, that it it's is. just yeah. win, win at all costs. You're going to go in, you're going to get smashed. You're going to get all these people are just like real jerks. And, and maybe they have stigma from other games or they have this perception of what a tournament player is. But for yeah. most of the time, it's just people who want to roll dice over the weekend. So to my original question, do you have any thoughts or ideas or any ways that you try to encourage um, newer players to, to make the leap into tournaments? Yeah, you uh, you make them sound fun. They are. So it's not hard to sell that. Um, to get more people in and new people playing, you have to excite the people who are there. So deliver quality and consistency. If you run on the third weekend of every month, you run on the third weekend of every month or every other month, whatever it is. You don't have to be that, you know, all regular with it. But if you're doing a regular thing, make sure it always happens. If it's every two months on the first Saturday, that's just when you do it. And players know to look for it. That's part of the advertising in advance. Um, but yeah, you're running quality. And when you're, I go when I can to the store on league nights, on AOS open play nights and teach people how to play and talk about the games and get them interested in showing up. Yeah, they're going to have a good time. The number of people who don't, I can count on my hand who've shown up to an event and said, Oh, it was terrible. I'm not coming back. And I've run hundred and the last one was 160 at LBO, 160 and change. The next one will, we're going to need eight rounds to actually clear a final winner in the next one. We're, we're pushing one uh, 256 plus at this point and, and all that I've less than my fingers have told me, Oh, I can't come. I hated it that many. So, you know, you just need to get them to show up and they're going to enjoy themselves. They're going to love it. And I find the toughest players who are the best players who usually end up in that top cut at a hundred man event at a 50 man event at a 200 man event. They're the best people to play. They're going to roll to the table. They're going to play their army some of them will explain how your army works to help you out. Some of them are going to, they're going to be so upfront and so friendly and because they already know what they're doing. They're confident. They're comfortable with their rules. They're probably the best opponent to bump into in the first couple of rounds. If you've never played in a big tournament, because they're going to go, Hey, you completely forgot to trigger your stomp and stop my guys from going last. Why don't you roll that? Cause that's big. If I go into your tree Lord, I, I could kill him. But if you can start make me go last, you can do some damage. So, you know, because they already know as that confident player with the army they've tooled up to the nines, they're going to win. What they want to do now is be an ambassador of the game. And I find most of them are it just like you are, just like I am. We're an ambassador for the game. And that's that's all you need to keep growing an event. Make sure it's run well. Make sure it's quality. Make sure there's consistency and just keep going and growing new players. When you play a new player. I don't care if I win the game at a turn at a small one day tournament or league night. I want to make sure the person across the table understands the game, had fun understanding the game and laughed. If I can't get them to laugh during the game, I feel I've done something wrong. I've got to get that, that across to them. And that's the, the best thing to build is word of mouth, person to person. Your friends went, they had a great time. They're going to drag you to the next one. And I, we have to make sure you have a good time. And that's on incumbent on every single player, whether you're the best player or the worst. When you see somebody new, you know, you just got to get that into their heads. You need to make sure 
you're making it fun for them. A couple of other things that I, you know, I, I agree. I agree with you. I think Gareth raises a really good point is the language that we use, you know, re renaming things from tournaments to um, events or, or conventions or games days, depending on, again, like obviously this is a broad question, right? Like, like, you know, LVO is clearly a tournament, but if you're trying to grow a community run an event, yes, even the language simply as calling it an event as opposed to a tournament might bring in newer players. The language that Gareth continued with, you know, come play five games as opposed to, you know, let's define who the best player is in X community. If I'm not, if I'm a new player, I know I'm probably not going to be the best person in the area. So how about you just encourage me to come play five games or three games, whatever the event might be. Yeah. Well, and yeah, language is everything, right? Something that I do a lot as well that I that worked last year I'm definitely doing again is I've made up name tags. And um, when I get people to submit their tickets to me, like their, their, their details, I also ask for a social media handle, whether it's Instagram or Twitter. Because, and, I, and I'll actually print it off on their little lanyard with, um, with their name. So one, if I'm a newer player walking around, I can see people's names and I, I feel less intimidated to have a conversation but two, when we're playing, uh, I, I take a lot of photos and I might actually go, hey, let's do a photo. Hey, do you mind if I tag you on Instagram of this game? And that builds up uh, a, a bit of rapport. And hopefully after the event's over, they now know somebody else in the community they can have a conversation with, they can line up a, a practice game or whatever it might be. So, And I think that's probably yeah. the key as well is just these, these events foster relationships and between events, I hang out with those gaming gaming players often because I've built up rapport and they're less scary. Yeah, well, it's going from table to table, introducing players, um, particularly when you see a new guy roll up to a table and you go, oh, this guy, you're going to love playing Clint. He's awesome. He thinks Manfred's the best ever. And, uh, uh, you know. About him. Sorry, <laughs> wow. Wow. Is He's that the way it is over there? I didn't know yeah, it was that way over there. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, you know, I figured I picked a safe name and, oh. No, but you know, but you know, like new players, even like if you see somebody who's sitting there by themselves or you, they, they look, you know, they don't look like they're getting involved in the conversation, introduce yourself, see if you can introduce them into a circle. I think that's another way you can foster relationships, especially early on when the tournament's just kind of starting up. And then they've got someone to hang out at lunch with. Um, Another thing I do is club awards. So I'll, I'll um, aggregate the best performance of a, of a gaming club. Yeah. So that encourages um, all like the top five. Like if it's like a big gaming club, you know, it's, you know, 10 players in a gaming club. I'll just go, right, best five scores, you know, average best gaming club. So then it encourages their gaming peers to bring in their friends um, and have these little friendly pockets of rivalry. Yeah, clubs are always great for that. They groups building up, doing things. Um, they do that in the um, ITC scoring too. They'll have the best club. Um, and I noticed it isn't as strong here in California, but I noticed in Texas clubs are a big thing. You belong to a group and, and that seems like something really worth fostering and building in, in a community. Um, yeah. I, I love it as well because you, if you can tap into it, right, if you can nail the, the club scene, when you sell a ticket to an event, right, and I say, hey, Sydney GT tickets are up for, for January, a club puts out that message to say, kids, we're yep. going to Sydney, Sydney GT, 
And then I'm not selling tickets one at a time. It could be 10 or 20 tickets from one gaming club. Yep. The, uh, well, and, and make sure you support events that are around you when you're in a position to do so. Point them out. Because uh, we have a lot of events starting up now that we're out of lockdown here. It's starting to pick up again. Um, the local scene in San Diego itself is really cold. We've basically had all this time off. I was running a league where we were getting 30, 36 players every rotation of the league. And now it's like I'm starting it up. I'm going to go check the list at the game store to start it this Monday. But um, I have a feeling I'm going to be lucky to get 8 to 12 at this point. We're just going to have to start over again because everybody's getting used to, to not having a regular night, not doing a regular thing. But promoting other people, uh, the Los Angeles group's getting bigger. We have events all over the place. I know um, in Vegas they're doing one. Uh, Wasteland Weekend out there is happening, and that's in a, a couple of weeks. It'll be a couple weeks after um, SoCal. And there's ones I know that they're running in Arizona near me. And just all these people are starting up things and we have to start leaning on each other, making the trip out just to say, Hey, we're here. Like when the game got started where I would travel hours upon hours to go play a game. Cause there are only a few of them and you had to be there. And then you come back to your group and say, it was awesome. You have to do it next time. You know? Yeah, I, th I think I made this comment a while ago that I feel like we've kind of gone back in time a little bit. Not that the community has been ruined, but I think COVID really put a pause on match play competitiveness. And we did have a point where, you know, you'd have massive events that are local. Now there's a bit of trepidation. Now people are kind of, you know, they might be settled in tabletop simulator. They just like, oh, I don't really want to go out just yet. So there's a real focus right now, at least in, you know, what I'm thinking about because I've had this big, break for four you know since june is how do i and and, and by the way if people are watching this later it's now mid-october so i've had almost four months of not playing real life sigma in real life so i've got to regrow and i think it's ways of just getting people out there um i'm sharing resources like the um the cheat sheets like i think it's is it uh not weird yeah the weird knobs they've got an awesome cheat sheet to build yeah. that confidence of like here's how you play the game um, constantly reminding people of AOS reminders, being able to just have your rules. I think that trepidation of having to like, oh, I don't know all my rules. I'm not confident. I don't want to slow the game down. Cool. Use your resources. Um, any ways I can build confidence over time, we'll just restart the community. I think that's kind of like where, where we need to go. Yeah. Well, and here we were closed. I couldn't play anywhere in San Diego for a good year. Yeah, I mean, wow. So a little longer than that, than about four months. So it, it's we wrapped up a league right around the time everything had to close. We we're I was trying to get it organized and done, and then you know until September the for so from what April to September was pretty hard lockdown, and a lot of the game stores didn't want to open for a while because they weren't ready. So that's just kind of where we are. Do you, and I'm conscious that every country and every state is going to be different with this advice. Do you have any thoughts with, with running a COVID safe kind of community? I know at least where I am right now, my government has mandated masks. They've mandated double vaccination and proof of that. And, you know, I'm obviously following state laws. My state will be different to yours. But do you have right. any considerations or things that you try to do to create a safe COVID kind of environment 
obviously COVID away, not COVID in your location, that is. Yeah, it's, I don't know, there's, it's so much floating around about it. Really, I think my response to um, Midwest Meltdown when Domus was asking questions um, is we're going to have to just meet people at the comfort level they're at. Regardless of the laws of our area, clearly we're going to have to follow those. If I'm going to have a gathering and I don't want it to be stopped, I have to follow. If it's masking, we mask. If it's outdoors, it's outdoors. Um, like I said, SoCal is a huge, giant room, so there'll be plenty of space, plenty of airflow. It's not entirely outdoors, but it might as well be. If you open them up, you're basically in a giant open barn. Um, so that might get people in, but I think we're going to have to coach people into their level of comfort. It's just... If we all have to wear masks because that's the way people are going to feel more comfortable, don't give your TO junk about it. He's trying to meet or she's trying to meet that middle ground of where everybody, you can get people together to play. It's fine. If I have to wear a mask, that's fine. You know, um, here we still have to do, you know, in some businesses and some places, we still wear masks. Um, I know other states are entirely mask-free. When I visited Texas, I pretty much didn't need one. Yeah, every every place is different, right? Like, and that's why I kind of but, think, you know, we can't talk about that, but it's just, you know, what can we do to make people but, feel yeah. confident? I think we want to meet meet our players where they're going to feel comfortable. If we get, if I send out a survey, we're going to be in a little game store. What would make you feel more comfortable coming in? And they say, look, I I'd like a mask. I'd like to do this. I'm willing to show up if you know there, we have flow of air. If we have, okay, great. You're just you just make that happen for them. Um, Eventually, we'll get away from where we are. People will feel more comfortable. The guidelines will come down. But I find that following the laws in most places is going to work for most people. But we're going to have to, a few people, if we want more community, we may have to just you know impose on ourselves our own kind of restrictions. I mean, That's another reason why I do my lunches. So I do prepackaged lunches. So I'll, I'll, incorporate that because in the past i've had events where you know the the to will organize pizza and they'll separate you know everyone could just grab grab a couple of slices of pizza which is great but right now i, I will get right. individually pre-packaged so i'll go look here's five different gourmet burger options here are a couple of drink options and they'll be individual packets so you know you're not congregating against certain food you're not sharing, you know, we can kind of create that a bit more. That's another way I've been trying to, trying to handle yeah, the, it's, the safety side. Yeah. It's beating people at their comfort. Cause if they see that they're, they may not want to go eat. Um, other people will be fine with it. And it's just, we're going to have to deal with this weird space where people have reasonable thoughts and fears. Some are going to have unreasonable thoughts and fears. People are going to have reasonable freeness and unreasonable level. You know, we're going to be all over the place. Some of us, won't want to wear a mask, won't want to do anything, don't feel like there's any problem, and move on. Others of us like, okay, I'm okay with little precautions, but that seems a bit much. Others are going to be a little more protected. Some are going to be on this other wing where mask wearing is absolutely necessary, open space and clear ventilation. And and we're just going to have to, until we're all comfortable at a certain point, deal with that. And it might also mean, you know, uh, my venue, I could have, I think I, I worked it out, I can have 110 people in my venue, like hundred, like you know, 50, 55, 60 tables. I could, but maybe right now I'm gonna have more space at my event. Run obviously still that I'm not you know, like losing money, but maybe it's only at 70 or 80 players. So there's more space. There's a breakout area that is, you know, as you said, you know, outdoors that people can eat and they're not kind of congregating. 
Um, it could be having a bit more relaxed policy of dropping out, especially as people might get sick or, you know, they're not feeling well or their, their comfort levels change because, you know, something spikes or whatever it might be. Having, you know, right. flexible policies can help people feel more comfortable buying a ticket. Yeah, it's it's interesting times we live in. And that is a curse. Yeah. But uh <laughs> And, and I'm not saying what's right or wrong. I'm just giving we're, we're nope. just giving ideas to people. You, if you're struggling right now, because I have seen some local game stores struggling to get numbers in their store, and I think it's not that Age of Sigma is not popular. In fact, it's very popular. I think it's just people's comfort levels and risk tolerance. Well, whether it's we're all in, yeah, I think we're all in different places based on our personal experiences, the things we hear and read. We're all at different places if we all know personally someone who's been seriously affected that has a lot of effect on how we want to interact if we know nobody those people exist where it's you know i, I haven't known anybody who's been serious they're not going to take it the same way that other person is and neither of them are wrong they're just we just need to find a way for everyone to start getting back together for sigmar and everything else you know well, let's 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 bring it home with one final question, uh, and I don't, I don't want to end on COVID, right? But I think it was important to yes. acknowledge as as TOs like me are now thinking about how do I restart the community now that my lockdown is kind of coming to an end, and yours might be going back up, but you're thinking about how do I keep the energy alive um, when you know you're going to lockdown, whatever it might be. But I've restarted my community. I'm getting a whole bunch of ideas and, and considerations for three E. But maybe the last thing I want to ask you to bring us home is what advice would you give if there was somebody who is a either a player like me who wants to partner with their local game store and kind of kick stump something kick start something, or maybe I am um, my my regular tournament organizer is no longer running events or you know whatever it might be. I want to I want to get into tournament organizing what final thoughts or advice or considerations would you give to me to kind of help me start my TO journey? Well, first there's probably somebody go help them. That's for us. We need somebody to come help us. Um, two, if you have players who want to play, they're all going to be grateful. You did something. There is no wrong way to really get started. I said, you're going to make mistakes there. There, you make mistakes in everything. That's how you learn. So go out there, do it, talk with store owners. What do they want? Because you're going to need that space over and over again. So you don't want to run something, cross one of their lines and not be allowed to do it again. But, you know, talk with the store owners, talk with your community, talk with everything is involved. Is there food nearby? Is this other stuff? And just, just run an event. Most game stores are in malls. They're near other venues. There'll be food. There'll be things they can go to. Um, consciously think of what do you want to do? Um, your first couple, I, you know, when I started, we just did fun, fun games. We didn't have points. So we had fun games, bring what you want, talk it over with your opponent, play a game. And we're just going to go with favorite vote for who wins because we just, you know, we want to figure who can have the most fun. Run that. You can run that today. It won't draw everybody, but you'll feel comfortable walking around the tables. The stakes are extremely low. And everyone rolls some dice and has a good time. Um, lean on a couple of apps. Uh, Tabletop TO, I run a few events that use that. It's excellent. BCP is also a good app to run things through. Um, Down Under Pairing is my other favorite as well. Down Under um, Pairing, yeah. I, I, it doesn't jump into my brain because that's not one I've actually played under. Uh, 
Well, it's funny because down under because down under pairings, if I'm if I'm if I'm wrong, in 2020 they're actually I think they're merging with BCP. So I think they've <laughs> kind of got they they've made an allegiance. I don't know how how that's tracking, but um, okay. there's some really awesome functionality in down under pairings that um I that I find BCP doesn't give me, but. I think regardless whether yeah. you like tabletop.to, down under pairings, BCP, there was an offline um, tournament software. I can't remember what its name is, but as a TO, there's plenty of software for me to tap into. Yeah, and you just just run a small event with friends, use it, go through and tag things. So when you end up doing 12 players, because it's, it's interesting at this point, those smaller events just seem like cake to me. When they tell me, oh, yeah, you're going to have 48 or so players at SoCal. When I started, that terrified me. Oh, yeah, we sold 30-plus tickets. I'm like, you did what? Oh, no. But you get used to it. You 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 do these things. So do the smaller ones. Be consistent. Cake what you like. Move to the next. Ask for help. That's something I'm really awful at. And it sounds like you, you gave me the same thing where it's like, yeah, I'm just a control freak. I want to take care of these things myself. I have that same problem. And eventually I have to start asking people to help because you can't do it all yourself, but it, there's no fear in doing it. Everybody's going to enjoy that you tried and you're going to learn something, do the next one. And eventually you'll be called by somebody to go, Hey, you know, uh, we lost our guy who does this and we have 30 people coming to our convention who want to play. Do you mind that, 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 and you'll already be ready because you've done a 12 manager store, which became a 20 man. You ran a little league. You did a, uh, um, what do they call it now? Path to Glory mm -hmm. League or the new setup, which seems really fun to do. You did that at your store. You organized a couple of things. So when somebody comes by and asks for a bigger one, you're ready to go. And we have a lot of people locally that have done that. I know several of the comments you popped up. Um, Gareth Thomas, he's been running things locally off and on north of me. So he did that. You know, you start with a one, you go to another one, and now you're on a big one. And him and some friends took the big leap and actually ran one when I was on vacation. So I wanted to see how that went, but I couldn't go. <laughs> I think one one big thing for me, and I'll, I'll let you regather your thoughts in case you got some more, is probably something that I, 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 I need more people to know. And that is that you do not need to know all the rules. I think as a TO, people have this perception that I need to know every rules interaction and I need to be able to, to define it and, you know, articulate it and be the best rule master. When actually a lot of the time as a TO, I push back to my opponents and go back to the way we would do it if we were at the club is you guys work it out, roll a dice. And if you yep. still need me to come in, I'm going to come in and you need to give me a rational argument why you believe this so that you've looked at the FAQs and the erratas, you've looked at the rules interaction, and it's not just hey, you know, we need you to work this out. I want to teach my players how to fish, so you need to work it out first before you call me over, because then then it allows me to be supporting the event overall and right. get yeah. them as better players. No, you you don't need to know all the rules. You don't need to be a good player. And if you you think I'm a good player, um, go look at my BCP scores. You'll see my scores at events. I'm terrible at events. I show up with what I want to play. I try to do a thing on the table, and if it happens, I'm happy. Um, you don't need to know the rules. You don't need to be good at the game. You just need to have the ability to want to do it. And 
if you have people skills of any kind, that's a plus. Because, I mean, as you said, if I they pull me to a table and go, did you read your rules? Like, well, okay, I'll be back when you read your rules. I still can't solve this. I'm not, I'm not doing it for you. Yeah. Um, maybe that's just the teacher in me. That just rolls right off the tongue. It it's helps. Like, oh, it, I got to go. Definitely, <laughs> it definitely helps you to know the rules. I'm not saying to pass the buck on accountability. But no, I no. think as, as Gareth has said, you know, we are event organizers. We're tournament organizers. We're not a traditional Magic the Gathering judge or an umpire. So I think it's important to empower your players to research themselves, look at their FAQs, look at their erratas, have a conversation. And then if they call over the TO, they state right. their case and know that the TO's ruling is final. Whatever I say, whether it's right or wrong, wrong. is my It's got to be final. Yeah. Because you've called me over. If you don't want to call me over to make that decision, you both need to work it out and have a conversation. And I think overall, that helps us all as players. Yeah, and I have a philosophy in the back of my head anytime I come to, sh to listen to rules. Uh, if you haven't been able to figure it out, I'm going to go with the most restrictive reading. That's, that's As a default, I'm going to go, I'm not interpreting what they thought or what they meant. I'm going to go with the most restrictive reading of the words in front of me. Just be, be, be known. That's what's going to happen. If you misplayed something at the table and it's just, you've misplayed something at the table and you haven't worked it out with your opponent, I'm probably going to come by and tell you, well, you did something wrong. You haven't rectified it to their satisfaction. You're, you're going to end up losing this argument, whatever it may be, because you admit you did something wrong. It didn't get back, get fixed at the right time. And now there's issues in your game. You know, so I have a general philosophy in my head. Most restrictive rules. If you play something wrong, you should own up to it and honestly work it out with your opponent. Because sometimes rules mistakes really don't matter, and other times they they seem to be really important. I won't I wasn't at the table. I don't know how important it really was. That's why I say seems. <laughs> and, and it's hard. And, and there is rules as written versus rules as intended. And if you are a rules as written, it's like letter of the law, what does the document say? Then if your rules is intended, it sounds like, well, this is kind of what they were trying to say. It doesn't explicitly say I can, doesn't explicitly say I can't. So like, and and certain players will, will be on either side. And it doesn't, and that's often where conflicts happen, is that I'm a rules right. as written kind of guy, you're a rules as interpreted kind of person, and we have this clash of like what the interaction means. Yeah, or this one thing we misread at this point. Because one of the things I, and I'm sure you've come across before, oh, we read this wrong. We played the whole mission wrong. Well, keep playing it the way you intended to play it because you can't go back in time. It's only going to well, start had, an argument. So, well, I had that. I had that uh, at a tournament this time last year where I had a game against, I'm not going to name the player, but um, I had set up, I got to the table early and I set it up for a, a scenario, for a battle plan. And my opponent came over and said, no, that's not the battle plan we're playing. We're playing this one. And like it's game five, and I'm like, all right, I don't care. All right, let's just change it. And then we started playing the game. We're about we're about to kick into round two, and then one of our friends come over, and goes, "Why are you guys playing that battle plan? It's this battle plan." So the one that I had set up was actually the correct one, but I was just so like over it. I'm like, I'm not going to argue. And it's like, well, do we go back and restart, or do we actually just play through? And we just played through. Um, it yeah. wasn't intentional. We're not like trying to cheat. But sometimes you just right. do the best you can with, with what you got. Yeah, but I've seen that turn into just this weirdest argument where, well, but then it would have, so let's score it all differently. No, no, no. 
whatever you intended, just finish it that way because you're in round four, man. I mean, <laughs> yeah, fixing the yeah. pool now is just, just it is get it done. It is. Is there any other I, advice? Like I, I, I shared, I shared a, a little pause break for you. Is there anything else that you would share for a TO? I think for me, the last things would be is to have fun, enjoy it. Um, tournament organizing and event organizing is highly rewarding. Um, it's nice to be able to give back a little. I've got, I go to so many tournaments. It's nice to be able because one of the problems I see in the community is it's the same tournament organizers running the same events which means that the event organizers are not getting a chance to play. And if everyone does their part, if everyone tries to run an event or get involved, it means there's more events for us all, which means there's more players, there's more opportunities to play, there's less travel or there's more interesting ways of, of, of having uh, narrative events and team events and doubles events and 1,000-point events and 2,500-point events. Um so, you know, high tide lifts or boats. So if you can get involved in some capacity, whether it's even, um, even you know, even like being an assistant TO, I think I would highly recommend it. Or support your local, grow the scene would be my 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 closing thoughts. Yeah, as you're going through that, that very phrase came in, the rising tide lifting all the boats. It's because if every store runs a tournament and you run a one uh, two-dayer and you rented a hall, you're likely to get more people because you've got that built community. Um, definitely have fun with being a TO. It's, it is rewarding. I have found I enjoy it almost as much as playing. Um, I definitely like it more than sweating out a tournament and playing in one. I, I, I always have a sense of relief when I lose my first game, because then I can just kind of go and play. <laughs> You're a submarine. Well, I'm there to roll dice, have a few drinks, have a few laughs, and if I happen to win the game, great. You know, kind of player, which is odd that I run tournaments, very competitive things, so these people take it seriously, and it, in the back of my head, I try really hard to to meet their serious level, but for me, it's just like, it's, it's a game of, you know, you paid all this money for these little guys, just enjoy yourself for the weekend. But as a TO, yeah, I, I love doing it. It's, it can be extremely enjoyable when you're done, and it's all successful, um, the last LVO, when we were all done, everything's in, the books are closed, we walked out to get food, and I'm, I'm literally bouncing on the tip of my toes. It was a successful event. I had people from all around the world. My goal when I started this was it'd be great if one day I could get 36 people to play. Well, I walked away from a 160-something man event that wrapped up smooth, no real problems, everybody had a good time. I felt amazing because I achieved something. I felt amazing when I finished that first 30 man event. I felt amazing when I finished that first 12 man event, just the completion, knowing you've helped the community, know you've done something that other people have enjoyed and will tell their friends about and bring into the game. It, it's its own reward. I, I, I don't know how to explain it unless you've done something like it, where you've given of your time and your energy to see a successful into it. It's just endlessly rewarding. I mean, I can't wait to, a, to the next time, you know. It's a thankless task. So if you're listening to this and you aren't running an event, my advice to you would be is to thank your TO, to uh, publicly acknowledge them, whether it's with a tweet or with a Facebook post like, hey, really enjoyed this event. Thanks for putting it on, Scott. Um, if you're feeling generous, I've, I've been to, to events where we've actually bought 
Uh, you know, myself and a club mates have bought like a bottle of bourbon or a bottle of drink or bought lunch for the TO. I've even bought coffees for, you know, Clint, you talk about Clint at CanCon. He's so stressed. I, I actually buy yeah. coffee a lot just because I know his ass is not getting off the table. He's always just stuck doing things like the guy's not eating yeah. properly. I'll get him something. And those little things are truly appreciated. So you don't have to run a tournament if you're not, uh, yeah, as Gareth says, well, like beers for the TO. Um, <laughs> get, them, get them a drink, publicly you know, acknowledge them, thank them at the end of the event, let everyone know. And if people are having a great time and they're seeing it, then they're more likely to come because you've got the social proofing. Um, yep. If you want to run an event, you know, start off with the FLGS, your local game store, um, do something small. It doesn't have to be a hundred players. It could just be five players or 10 players. Do something um, fun. Don't make it competitive. Just have it a, a play night for games and choose opponents. Don't even rank them. Just we're all here. Pick somebody new this round, play somebody new, get them a drink, do something simple. Yeah, or you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be wins, losses, and tactics. You could do if you're, you know, trying to build a community. It could be, um, you could have different ways to kind of define a winner. It could be a a hero battle royale at the end of the day. It could be, um, you know, best story, grand story that you had, you know, in the moment. But if we're going to grand tournaments, then you know, it's very clearly clearly defined, and you know, there's rules in the journal's handbook. There is lots of other people who are paving the way. Um, yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier the Warhammer Open. It could be Boba. It could be um, the Michigan GT or the Lone Star, like the Texas Open folk. There are just so many people. Yeah. And they made it really easy this year. You can literally run it out of this. There's nothing you have to add. They made it way, way easier this time than any year past. Sorry. No, no, no. It's good. Like, I think, I, I think they're you know, le leveraging off the what the community is already doing. You know, NashCon has happened. Um, you know, the the Austin, the like the Texas Masters folks. You had this lo the Lone Star Open. Um, uh, yeah, now they're doing Old, the Old, coming up as another Lone Star that they're running. So Old good luck to them. Down. Like, there's just so many events out there that you can just tap into and steal their pack and, and manipulate it slightly. So um, that's how we all do it. We no, none of no one created this from the start. Everyone has has bastardized um, what the community is doing, but. Scott, this has been awesome. This is two hours of T.O. goodness. Um, oh, my goodness, There's a is. lot we could talk about, man. We could talk about so much. I could, I, could, yeah. I could show you my pricing structure and how I run like I, like I run an event based on ticket allocation and price distribution and percentages. And because I, 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 I would love all, it. I have I – have, because um, I hire my venues, right? I hire, you know, rooms and, and costs and – I've said to my wife since day one that I will only ever run a cost neutral event. So I will never spend my own money. So I will never be at the end of an event and lost money, but I also am not in it for the profit. So I will always run cost neutral. The more money I make, the more money I put into the price pool. So as I'm hitting my quotas, as I've paid off my rents and my expansions and, you know, all the allocation, I can then put into, and that's where I've done 3D printing to, you know, one of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm learning how to do 3D printed trophies so that I can reduce the cost of my trophies and I can have more Age of Sigma focused trophies. And it allows me to do more with my dollars or reduce my ticket cost because I don't need as much money for X or I can put in more prizes. 
Yeah, and we would find that endlessly fascinating, back and forth with the pricings, the structure of a pack, the flow of a thing. And then everyone else would uh, go to sleep and turn off their... <laughs> Are you on Twitter or Instagram at all? Like if people wanted to talk to you further and kind of get some, you know, maybe some advice or maybe they're in a position where they're like, look, I'm... I don't know what scenarios to pick. Like, if, if are you around at all? I know you're, obviously you're on Facebook, but anywhere else that you're online? Yeah. Um, on Twitter, I believe it's Thelnorn1, T A T L N O R N1. That's, there was a whole Dragon Magazine about rolling a name of a character. So I ran a dra- demon prince in an army and I randomly rolled the name of the character and that was what I got. So, it stuck with send, me for all this. Send it, send it to me, and I'll put it in the episode description. Um, if people want to reach out to you and um, grow your following, but um, so you're on Twitter. I am um, also on all the packs. It has my email. I recently changed it to um, AOS ITCTO because my regular Thilnorn One uh, at Gmail. It was getting muddled with all of my regular business of selling models, buying models, and uh, other hobby-related stuff. So I wanted to put all the comments in a place where I could just look for my events and stuff. No, I dig it. So. Uh, and and I'm and and if anyone wants to chat to uh, tournaments as well, I actually have a specific channel in my Discord focused on TO talk. So if people want to get advice people want to chat. I know it's been like, I had a really good conversation the other day about prize distribution. Like they were talking about how they were going to allocate prizes based off the funds. And, you know, we had a really robust conversation of how to, you know, how, how you know, and, and ways you can do it. You know, if I was running something at a local game store, you know, using store credit and spreading it out further means that, you know, you're encouraging more spend, which means the FLGS gets more money, which means they're more likely to bring allow you to come next month, which means they're more likely to give you price support because you're encouraging spend. So you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of science behind being a TO, but don't try to bite it all off in one go. Start slow, grow over time, chat to people like us. We're obviously all willing to help because, again, high tide lift boats. Yep, yep. That's always uh, the, uh, the key. Cool. Uh, awesome. All right, Scott, man, this was awesome. Um, I learned a lot. I'm excited to run my first event, 7th of November. I'm running my first one day art, third edition. We're going to have two games and have an absolute ball. Then my GT is in January. So um, Sounds very exciting. I'm pumped. I'm pumped. Yep. I'm excited to roll third edition. I'm excited to hear it happen, even though I can't get anywhere near it. It's all right. I'll be, I'll be over in America next year. I've got money. I just don't know if it's LVO, Adepticon, Nova. I don't know. But America's happening next year. They have to work out when it's going to be. All right. I look forward to it. <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you, Scott. You are a legend. And I hope TOs learned something. And if you have an idea, put it in the comment section. Let us know what we missed and ways that you are running an awesome event. All right. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for sticking around until the end. I hope you found that video interesting and you walked away with a few new ideas. If you did, I would appreciate it if you hit like on the video as well as left me a comment. Let me know what your thoughts are in the comment section below. The conversation will continue over on Discord, so links down below in the episode description if you want to join the Discord and continue the Age of Sigma conversation. I want to give a massive shout out as well to these absolute bloody legends, these champions 
who have continued to support me through Patreon or YouTube members. That is going directly into supporting the maintenance and the growth of this channel. So thank you very much, guys. Much appreciated. And until next time, roll more sixes.